Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Well, brothers and sisters, as you're all fully aware, the last time we were in the fourth gospel, the gospel according to John, we had brought chapter 10 to a conclusion and we had begun into chapter 11. Now, you may remember that what had taken place at the end of chapter 10 was the Jews, the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish establishment there in Jerusalem, were furious at Christ. They had a rage towards him because they weren't impressed by what he said. They weren't impressed by his claims. This Jesus who stands before them and they see him as a mere man claimed to be one with the Father. And their accusation of our Lord was, you who are a mere man claim to be God. So they picked up stones to stone him. And then we found that towards the end of chapter 10, the Lord departs with his disciples and goes across the Jordan River with his disciples. Most likely the location is about 90 to 100 kilometers away from Jerusalem. And there he remains. Why? Because things were getting a little too hot in Jerusalem. But he wasn't there long. He wasn't there long. This is what we examined or meditated upon last time we were in, the, in chapter 11. He wasn't there long before some serious news coming by way of a messenger came to Christ. In fact, it was Mary and Martha. These two siblings, the sisters that Jesus so much loves, had brought him a message by way of a messenger. And it was a serious message. And it was a simple message. Simply said, they said to the Lord, Lord... He whom you love is ill. Short and sweet. They knew Christ. He knew them. They loved him. There was an intimate relationship with them. They didn't need to say much more than those words because it is Jesus we're talking about after all. He'll do what is right. He's the good shepherd. He loves his sheep. Surely he will do what is right and of course the lord will always do what is right but here is the rub what is good and what is right objectively beloved in the eyes of our lord in the eyes of god may not actually be what is good and right in the eyes of others it might actually not even align with what is in the thoughts and in the minds of his own people, his own sheep. And so the actions of our Lord, without a proper context or understanding the story as we move on, the actions of our Lord may come across as a little unkind. Maybe some have thought Jesus' actions to be a little even cruel or even heartless, which is not true, of course. Why? Because he heard the message. But he didn't depart. He didn't move from the place that he was at. He was some 90 or 100 kilometers away. And we all know that 
when he heard that message, he could have quite easily dropped everything and, and begun the trek back to Bethany, not far from Jerusalem, to be at the side of Mary and Martha and, and bring healing to their brother's body. And Jesus was well capable of doing that, but he, he decided not to do that. We also know by reading the gospel, thus up until now in John chapter 4, and, and, and we read the, the, the miracle of our Lord at the, of, of the royal official's son, we know that Christ, from where he was across the Jordan, could have just willed or said the word, and Lazarus would have made whole, would have been made whole again, completely whole, but he chose not to. In fact, when he hears the words, when the messenger comes to him, Jesus decides to do nothing. He actually decides to stay two days longer in the place that he was at. Over the river he remains while Lazarus gets sicker and sicker. All the while, the the girls that he loved, Mary and Martha, are stricken with unbearable grief and sorrow, waiting and waiting as their brother gets sicker and sicker. Where is Jesus? Surely he'll come. Surely he'll come. And he doesn't. It's not the traffic that set him back. He simply chose not to come. Mary and Martha sent for Christ. They knew where he was and they knew how long it would take for him to come back. After all, the messenger did come back. So they figured out the sums and they knew at what point Christ should have arrived at their doorstep had he have left immediately and probably he would have got there earlier because in their minds they're thinking, surely he's not only going to walk through the day, he's going to steamroll through the night as well. But, but he didn't. At this point, it's a possibility, at least, that doubts begin to run through the mind. And then the the dreaded why question. Why? Why is Jesus not here? Why is he not by our side? Why hasn't he come to make our brother well? Why, Lord? If we're reading the narrative for the first time, you may actually have some conflicting views about our Lord. But he knows what he's doing. He's in full control. He knows what he's doing. Beloved, the reason why I simply said the Lord stayed behind was what he said in verse 4 of, of chapter 11, and that is that the Father would be glorified. That the Father has a, a plan And that plan included his son. And his son will bring the power of God to bear upon Lazarus. And the father will be glorified. And the son says it as plainly as that, that this is taking place all for the glory of God. And despite how difficult the circumstances are, and how difficult the the grief and the sorrow will be upon Mary and Martha and those relatives who are there, As difficult as that experience is going to be, the Lord is resolved to do what he does for the absolute greatest good. The absolute highest end, the most worthy of all causes, of all creation, and that is to bring glory to God. And as we said the other week, that is enough. That's enough. That's the greatest end. The last time we were here, I labored to show you that there is a parallel truth to the glory of God being at the very core of all that Christ does. A 
parallel truth. There's a truth that runs side by side with, with his heart's purpose and objectives and his intention to, to bring glory to the Father. You remember what that truth was. If you look out throughout Scripture, you, you will not find a single event or a situation where God is dealing with His people. And remember, we're talking about God's people, the sheep. Not His dealing with the reprobate. Not His dealing with the wolves or, 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 the, or the, the wolves in sheep's clothing. No, but when He's dealing with His sheep, there's this parallel truth that runs through the whole of Scripture. And it's an eternal reality. And that is that God does what He does ultimately for the greatest good, the greatest good, the most worthy of all ends, and that is his own glory, but running side by side, parallel to that truth, is another reality, and that reality is that he does what he does because he loves his own. And because he loves his own, he's purposed to bring only what is good to his people, to his sheep. Ultimately, it may not see it. We may not see it here and now. And when you're going through the difficulty, you may not see it with your eyes. But ultimately, everything God does, He does to bring that which is good to His people. And it's an eternal good. He's not thinking about simply the temple that is here today and gone tomorrow. But rather, He's thinking about the eternal good to His sheep, to His people. God will be glorified in all that he does. But also in all that he does is rooted in his love for his own and his ultimate desire also to bring good to his own people. Beloved, this is a, this is a greater view than what we sometimes read, even, even in the Old Testament. When we think about Psalm 119, verse 68, where Psalm says that, that God is good and what you do is good. Praise God. Speaking about his, his actions, his disposition over all of creation, all that he's made. Or Psalm 145, when he says that all he does, he does good to all. And his mercy is upon all that he has made. Praise God. Speaking about a, a general benevolence of God upon everything. And the reason for the goodness of God is because he is a good and holy God. He's righteous. Everything he does is good by definition. A good God does good things by definition. However, what we're speaking about and what I tried to articulate the other week for us is that there is a special goodness of God that's rooted in his love for those he has elected in Christ from eternity past. And it's not a general benevolence. In other words, God is good when he throws or when he casts the reprobate into hell. God is good for bringing the judgment upon the people of Shechem. God is good by bringing the judgment upon Abimelech. He's good in doing all those things. But the goodness I'm trying to bring to the table here, what we see running through Scripture, which is parallel with the sovereignty, with the glory of God being the ultimate ends, is that God brings what is of ultimate eternal good to His people. It's the goodness that they enjoy for all eternity. It's a special goodness that is in the heart of God towards His people. So that when it's all said and done, beloved, We're going to be able to look back and say, Lord, I didn't see it. I felt the pain. I felt the tribulation. And in that time, I trusted in you. But but now I'm able to look back and say, everything you've allowed me to go through, every minute of every day, every pain, every suffering, 
every bit of sorrow, every hurt, oh Lord, it has been for my good and you are good. Beloved brothers and sisters, we're going to be able to say those words and I believe the Lord wants us to believe them even now. Greatest ends is the glory of God. But he loves his people and at the same time the reality is that everything he does is also motivated for the good of his own. So everything the incarnate son of God did in his earthly ministry was to that ends. That was his motivation. That was his food. He wasn't driven by the circumstances. They change. He wasn't driven by emotions, although he does have emotions. But they can change up and down. He wasn't driven by the pressure that he felt from those around him. And, and he did feel a lot of pressure from those around him. And beloved, he was so resolved and resolute in seeking the glory of God above all things that he's unmoved by anything. Hear this. This might be a difficult one to swallow. But he's not even driven by the prayers of his people. He hears them and he sympathizes with them. But sometimes his own pray for things that they have no idea what they're praying for. He is bigger, he is higher, he is greater than all these things. Our Lord is not a pragmatist. He's not driven by the here and the now. Beloved, what drives the Lord is something greater and that is the glory of the triune God above all things when at the same time it will be a bestowal of goodness and love upon his people. Last time we spoke, we spoke to those points and I said those things. And they're the, the big overarching view of what, why Christ does what he does and why God does what God does and why he does it. But I want to see this evening, this afternoon, I want to talk about the means to that greatest end. I want to talk about the means to the highest good, the glory of God. And what is, and what is that means? How does Jesus go about achieving, accomplishing the glory of God? He does it, beloved, by being perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. To the revealed will of the Father. The Father has made his will known perfectly to his Son. And when Christ perfectly obeys the will of the Father, and he does it unmovingly, non-deterrently, when he does that, he brings glory to the Father. Because he does the things that the Father has, has preordained for him to do. And he will do them despite the circumstances and the pressures and the difficulties that are around him. And I think that's what we see in this chapter. That's what we see in the text that is before us. We see this being worked out in the life of our Lord and the teaching of our Lord towards his disciples. He's teaching his disciples this lesson, I believe. And I think by extension, he's teaching us here in 2022, here at Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church, he's teaching us that lesson by virtue of the fact we have our Bibles open providentially to that section. To have an innate resolve to bring glory to God in all that we do, and we do that by walking according to his revealed will. Now, it's only two days earlier that our Lord received news 
that Lazarus was deathly ill. And he decided, he decided not to act, but to remain. Not exactly what you and I would have done, maybe, okay, but the Lord was resolved only to do the will of the Father, only to speak the words that the Father had given him, only to do the miracles that the Father had given him, only act in the way the Father had given him, only make the claims that the Father has has taught him to, to make, and also according to the exact timing of the Father. He had a divine calendar, and he was working according to the divine calendar. He didn't depart two days ago to see Lazarus because it wasn't the right time. This now, two days on, is the right time. Now, don't you think that Jesus took all the things, all the details and the circumstances into his consideration? He loved Mary and Martha. He loved them dearly. Do you think Jesus wasn't aware of their anguish? Their sorrow? He was. Do you, do you think that that he didn't know that he could quite easily alleviate that anguish and sorrow immediately? He, of course, he knew he could. Do you think, beloved brothers and sisters, that Jesus wasn't heartbroken over their pain, over the pain of his people? He was. You see, sometimes when we read the text and we see God's or Jesus's absolute resolute resolve to obey the Father. When he says words like, my food is to do the will of the Father. I only do what is pleasing to the Father. I only do what he has commanded me to say and speak. When you hear those words, you may be at risk of putting some form of cold mechanical obedience upon the Lord in his disposition to the Father. And that's not it at all. Beloved brothers and sisters, Christ was very concerned to do the will, to accomplish all that the Lord, that the Father has given him to accomplish in his incarnation. But don't for a moment think that he did it in a cold or a mechanical way, especially when you look at the, 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 the circumstances for which he did it. Like, for example, Mary and Martha going through the anguish that they went through. Beloved, we must never ever think that way. We must have a reality in our mind and it needs to be at the forefront of our mind as we work our way through the Gospel of John chapter 11. In fact, we should have this reality in mind as we work through the Gospels, all of them, all four, and we, and we look at Jesus' life and meditate and consider His life. And this is the reality, beloved. It's found in our text. Actually, it's found in John chapter 11 and it's the shortest verse in our English Bibles. You know it off by heart. It's found in verse 35. Jesus wept. I want you to think about that for a second. Jesus wept. These aren't crocodile tears. These are tears where he was in anguish. He was broken over the plight of the people that are before him. Jesus wept. He knew that upon arriving, it would only be moments, minutes, not even hours, before he will say, Lazarus, come forth, and he will come out of the grave. And all the weeping, Martha and Mary, and all the Jews, all that weeping and mourning will come, will come to an end, and it will be replaced with joy and, and, and tribula, and, 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 sorry, I lost the word, and, 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 jubilation, that's the word, not tribulation, I'd be preaching another message. Jubilation, thank you brother for helping out. It will be replaced with that, will it not? Jesus knew this. That why is it only a few moments before he raises Lazarus from the dead that he weeps? 
He weeps. He mourns with those who are mourning. Because these are his own. He's broken over their mourning. Over their anguish. Yes, he, his will, his food, his greatest desire is to do the will of the Father. But let's not think for a moment he does it without actually being completely, genuinely in pain and in anguish over the pain of his people, even though he knows that ultimately their pain will bring about their good. Jesus wept. We get to see behind the scenes here. This is not just a narrative that we're given in John chapter 11. We we get to see a little behind the scenes of what's going on in the mind of Jesus. And so although Mary and Martha, godly women, we know that, very likely on their knees praying, very likely praying when Lazarus was still ill, praying, oh Lord, bring healing to our brother. We don't want to lose him. But our Lord was resolved not to be by his side. He was resolved not to track down to Bethany, to Judea, because the will of the Father was that he needed to wait another two more days. And he does. He waits two more days. If he ended up going earlier, it was not the right time. So he waits. He waits until Lazarus is dead. That's the right time. And not just does he wait until Lazarus is dead. As I said earlier, he's some distance away. The timing, the divine timing of God was that Christ would then make his way down to to Bethany. And at that point, Lazarus would be dead four days. And we'll speak to that truth in a future, in future sermon, Lord willing. But for now, let's look at verse 7. Before, only two days earlier, Jesus said he'll stay. And now verse 7 tells us that Jesus says to his disciples, Let's go to Judea again. Let's go to Judea again. Now the timing is right. The outward circumstances aren't any better. The Jews still want him dead. We know that for sure. That hasn't changed. And his disciples aren't exactly keen to go. Did you see that in the text? You realize his disciples aren't really jumping up and down saying, yes, let's, let's do it. In fact, maybe you should have been asking the question, when Jesus does decide to stay another two days, why we don't have anything in the, in the narrative to tell us why weren't the disciples saying, hey, but Jesus, this is the one you love, we know. Don't, don't you want to go down? No, it seems like they remain quiet. We're told here in verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? They're shocked. Their counsel to our Lord is, this is a little bit too dangerous. The heat is still up there in Jerusalem. So going to Judea, Bethany, only not even two kilometers, well, two and a half kilometers or thereabouts away from Jerusalem. Jesus, don't you think it's a little dangerous? They were just having stones in their hands to stone you. It's still boiling the pot in Jerusalem. That's their counsel to our Lord. They're shocked. And they do have their rabbi's best interest in mind, there's no doubt. They, they, they are concerned for Jesus' well-being. They're concerned for Jesus' safety. There's no doubt there. But they're probably also concerned for their own safety as well. You see, they're not exactly immune to any persecution that may come their way if they head down to Jerusalem or to Bethany, to Judea. 
You see, there was a certain risk in being a follower of Christ. A follower even of a, of a rabbi. And to be a follower of Christ, well, that had an additional risk because Jesus didn't toe the line in anything. Jesus said it as it is. And the Jews were completely hostile towards our Lord. And that means that the disciples would have bore some of that hostility. Beloved brothers and sisters, the fact of the matter is, if you follow after Christ, you're going to have to expect some hostility. You're going to have to expect some persecution. These disciples knew it. They knew the risk. They knew the heat that Jesus would be bringing upon himself and upon them as well. You remember Second Timothy chapter 3, he who seeks to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what will suffer persecution. It's, it's, it's a known fact. And you remember when Jesus was, on the night he was betrayed and he was dragged through that mock trial and he was taken to the high priest's home and outside the high priest was a, a courtyard and, and Peter had followed the Lord and there was fire kindled in that courtyard and people were probably just, just getting warm around that fire and Peter comes and strolls along and three times, not once, not twice, three times people ask him, but aren't you one of his followers? First time, a servant girl. And three times Peter says, no, no, you don't know what you, I don't know what you're talking about. Three and a half years at the right hand side of the Lord. And three, and three times, I don't know what you're talking about. Peter wasn't afraid of receiving a fine. Peter was fearing his life. He had a wife, we know that, Matthew chapter 8, and possibly children, a business, a family. He relied upon him breathing. So it was a serious thing to follow after Christ. The pressure was there. The pressure had not changed. Mary and Martha, heartbroken, but the will of the Father would hold him back two full days. His disciples, they didn't want to go. They wanted to remain there on the wilderness, in, in the wilderness. They wanted to remain there across the Jordan because it was safe. But Jesus continued the will of the Father must be done. Competing issues, difficult circumstances, conflicting opinions, that he had an unshakable resolve to do the Father's will, no matter what. No matter what. Now, lest you think for a moment that the tough decisions that Jesus made were made at the expense of others, may I remind you of Gethsemane? May I remind you of what took place on the Mount of Olives in that garden called Gethsemane. You, you remember the story. You remember when Jesus was, was, was on his knees praying before the Father. You remember what he said in Luke chapter 22? He says, and he withdrew, that's Christ, from them, that's the disciples, and about a stone's throw away, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And hear these words, verse 44. And being in agony. Agonia. We know what that word means. We've all used that word, agony. That word is only used once in the New Testament. 
right here. Isn't that fitting? Could you use that word anywhere else when you're describing what Jesus is actually going through? He being in agony. Being in agony, he says, he prayed more earnestly. This is Jesus praying to the Father. This is Jesus on his knees praying to the Father. Remove this bitter cup from me, but not as I will. Let your will be done. It says here, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. This wasn't just a simple request. There was something in our Lord that, that desired that agony, that horrific pain to be taken away. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There's a mystery that shrouds this passage, beloved. Hebrews 5, add, Hebrews 5 adds to it and says that when Jesus prayed, he cried out loud or cried aloud with tears. He cried aloud with tears. If anyone is to say that Jesus' obedience to the will of the Father came easy, think again. I was speaking to some brothers just the other day and I was telling them, look, there are passages and doctrines in Scripture that I don't fully understand. They're mystery to me. Brothers and sisters, this is one. This is one that I absolutely struggle with like you don't have no idea. I believe it, but I don't understand the depth of what's going on here. The horrific pain, the agony that Jesus is experiencing here in Gethsemane. I don't know how to, how to grasp the depth of what Christ is going through. It's a mystery. I read it over and again, over and again. I've read what many commentators have to say, but I sit back and say, no, there's more to it than that. More to it than that. There's something here that that blows our human minds. What Jesus is going through, the sinless, perfect, blemishless Lamb of God who never knew sin, who never did a sin, who never thought an unrighteous thought, who never lied with his tongue, who never looked upon a woman with lust in his eyes, he never hated, he never spoke words of hate. Everything he did was motivated by love and goodness and righteousness. Everything. And here he is, the Father Speaking to the Father and saying, if there is any way of taking this cup, this bitter cup of judgment, I know what I'm going to bear. If there's any way to put, take it away, but as your will be done, not mine, the angels come and they strengthen him and then he prays even more earnestly. Even with conflicting desires, our Lord taught us that even in our prayers, as deep and as sincere and as desperate as we are, we must always allow our prayers for the will of the Father. We must always align our prayers with the will of God, no matter how difficult that is. But it also means that even your prayers and mine, beloved, even our prayers, sometimes we're on our knees, 
And it's the most natural thing to do when we are in need. We come to our Lord and we pour out our soul. But even, even our prayers would not alter the resolve that the Lord had to do the absolute will of the Father in perfect obedience because that will result in the glory of God and for the ultimate good, a good that you and I cannot even begin to fathom, far greater than anything we are praying for. It wasn't the Father's will to remove this bitter cup from our Lord. And our Lord knew it. And so he joyfully obeyed. It was a lesson for Mary and Martha. Their prayer, no doubt, was for the Lord to come. But the Lord didn't come when they wanted him to come. A lesson for them to learn. A lesson, no doubt, for the disciples who desired to stay safe across the Jordan River. But it wasn't the will of the Father that they would stay. They needed to also align their hearts with the will of God and to do that joyfully. And many other examples are found in Scripture where prayer, even sincere prayer, is not answered as we would like for that prayer to be answered. And that's actually a very difficult reality when we think about it. And it might be a bit of a side note. But even sometimes when we pray earnestly to the Lord, can any of you say in a good conscience that Jesus' prayer wasn't earnest in Gethsemane? Even when we pray earnestly to the Lord, with whole heart, seeking Him, even, even then, even if our prayers are completely unselfish, or at least we think they are unselfish, is there a possibility that what we're praying for may not perfectly align with the will of the Father for our lives? There are many things we can pray for that do align to the will of the Father. We have his word, we have his light, and we ought to align our hearts with his. But beloved, there's so many times that you pray prayers and so have I that I thought were aligned but maybe they won't. How often have we prayed for a loved one to be saved? A father or a mother or a sister or a brother? But it wasn't the Lord's will. How often have we prayed that, that the Lord will be glorified through the salvation of, of, of some? Or even the Lord will be glorified through, like our brother prayed earlier, the, the reduction of the persecution of the church, that we, our hearts go out and out of love. We want to see the church flourish in, in many countries, that there's heavy persecution. Oh, Lord, bring reprieve. Please, Lord. And we ought to pray this way. We ought to weep this way. We ought to be on our knees this way. But what if it's not the Lord's will? We press and press and the Lord may have another will. We have to recognize that that which the Lord wills is better than ours. It's a difficult reality. But we must align our will with the will of the Father. How do we know that we've aligned our will with His? Let me ask you something. When we... When we pray, and we think we're praying according to the will of the Lord, we pray for the glory of the Father, and it may be for salvation of souls, it may be for the sanctification of a loved one, 
It may be for a lot of things that we ought to be praying for. When we don't have an answer or receive an answer that we were expecting, what is our attitude? What is our attitude in our prayers? Do we get upset? Do we get disappointed? Do we ever wave our fist at God? Do we ever say, why, Lord? Why? Why aren't you... Why aren't you hearing my prayers? Why aren't you answering my prayers like I think they should be answered? I get it. I'm not speaking in an abstract. I understand. I've, I've asked those questions before. I have. I understand. When we don't receive the answers that we want, are we still joyful? that we're able to come into the throne room of grace, into the presence of the almighty God of the universe and know that he has our ear. Are we still joyful that we're able to supplicate on behalf of our brothers and sisters and the lost? Or, or do we get, or do we get um, demoralized when we don't have the answers that we expect to hear? You see, beloved, I think we have to be very, very careful. I'll move on in a moment. Because even in our prayers, we can, we can be idolatrous. Let me explain that. We can have actually self on throne rather than Christ on throne, even, even in our prayers. And let me, let, me, let me tell you how. This is one way. When we pray, we ought to pray in the Spirit. And by faith. But when we do pray in that way, do we walk away all encouraged because of our prayers? Or do we walk away encouraged because the one to whom we pray hears us? Are we having faith in our actual prayers? Or do we actually have faith in the one to whom we pray? I mean, these are things we need to be, we need to be thinking about. And I'll tell you why. Because when we pray, we ought to pray according to the will of God. And we ought to pray according to the heart and the desires of God, according to Scripture. And sometimes we do that, but are we placing our trust in our own prayers Or are we placing our trust in the one to whom we pray? Beloved, prayer is for us to be able to come and align our will with the will of the Father. Our will with the will of Christ. The purpose of prayer is this. To by the Spirit seek the Lord in everything. And to know that the one who is the God of all the universe. The one who has no beginning and no end. The one who is all-knowing is all-powerful, the one who loves us and has demonstrated his love for us in sending his only begotten son to, to hang upon that cross and bleed for us as the atoning sacrifice that this God has made a way for the holy of holies to be opened, the curtain to be torn in two, and for us to enter in not on our own merits but on the merits of Jesus Christ and his atoning blood to enter into the presence of the almighty God of the whole universe. That is the blessing of prayer. That you're there in his presence. 
that you have his ear, that he hears you, that he loves you, that he desires to be with you. We ought to align ourselves with his will, take ownership of his will. Let it be your will. Let your will be done is what Jesus says. It's then that fear and anxiety is stripped away because my prayer and my request don't become the focal point, but the Lord becomes the focal point of my supplications. I'm not on edge until I receive the answer that I'm waiting for. I'm not anxious until I receive the answer I'm waiting for, but rather I acknowledge the one to whom I pray. I acknowledge that his ways are best and I rest in him. I rest in him and not in my prayers. I rest in him and not in the outcome of my prayers. I rest in him. I don't make demands of the almighty God of the universe, but I come to him with my supplications and the desires of my heart, which I believe, according to his word, would be according to his will. And I bring them to him and I press into him and I say, Lord, if that's not what you want, Give me a heart to receive whatever comes from your hand and help me to receive it joyfully. The focal point is the greatness of God. We can face our fear, beloved, and the uncertainties of life not because of the possibilities of possible of positive outcomes, but simply because who he is, the sovereign God who loves us and has brought us into his family. Then and only then will we be able to rejoice even when our prayers are not answered the way we think they should be answered. Because we know he knows best. And we're wholly surrendering to him. You see, the disciples right now are fearful. That's the text before us. They're they're fearful. They're warning Christ not to go back because he was just stoned very, very recently. And I love the way our Lord alleviates their fears. It may not seem obvious at first, but that's what he does. And he does it through teaching the disciples two lessons. Two lessons, actually, in verse 9 and 10. I'll only address one today. And we'll do the next one next week, Lord willing. Let's read from verse 8 for context. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Are there not 12 hours in the day? It may help us to understand um, and to, 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 to grasp how the Jews actually recognize time. It's a little bit different to us. They had their time, and you will know this by reading the Gospels, their, their day, a, a 24-hour day, consisted of an evening, 
you know, in the beginning, and it was evening and there was morning. It began, it began at 6 in the p.m. and it ran through 24 hours to 6 in the p.m. again. But their working day was the, the day was a, a, the sunlight. Daylight was a full day for the Jews. So it wasn't so much. And Jesus says here, he says, that aren't there 12 hours in the day? And we can sort of sit back and think, wait a minute. Like, we know here in Australia that the days or the amount of hours in a day differs from summer to to winter and all the way in between in fact right in the summer we have days that are longer than 14 hours and in the winter we have days that are shorter than 10 hours so we're looking at these words and we're thinking what does jesus mean when he says that in a day there are 12 hours in a day and it really comes down to how the jews the system of time for the jews a daylight or the the sunlight would be a 12 hour day for the jews so in other words whether it was a winter day or a summer's day it didn't matter how many of our hours are there the jews would divide the sunlight into 12 portions so 12 portions each one of those portions was an hour so in the summer every hour was longer than an hour in winter. And the, and the time for working, the time to get out there and do, you know, to accomplish your work was in the sunlight hours, not in the night or the dark hours. So from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, from sunup to sundown, sundown was the working day. And in that working day was 12 hours, irrespective of how many days or how many, um, uh, whether you were in the winter or the summer or any other season, it didn't matter because the daylight hours was divided into 12 equal 12 equal portions if the sun was out it means there's work to be done if the sun was down then there is no work to be done every day is complete so no matter what day of the year any one of the 365 days in the year every single day was a complete day because every day had 12 hours Right? So every day had 12 hours. It had 12 portions. So it didn't matter which day you, you came and examined. Every day had 12 hours because the day, the sunlight hours, was actually divided into 12 portions. And I believe what Jesus is doing here is he's relating the working hours of a day to the span of one's, one's life. The span of a day, which is the 12 hours, may vary from one season to the other we know that and the span of one's life may vary from one season from one person to another the hours that you have in a day for example again maybe longer than the hours i have in a day but one thing for sure is this as it is that every single looking back and there's been over two million sunsets I've done the sums. I'm a young earth creationist. It's okay. It's only a bit over 6,000 years. But there's been 2 million sunsets. But if we look back, according to the Jewish way of looking at time, we can say this for sure, that every single one of those days was complete. Every single one of those days had 12 hours, according to the Jewish way of taking time. That means looking back... There is never a day that closed on the eighth hour or the ninth hour or the eleventh hour. Because whatever the sunlight was, divide that by twelve and they had twelve hour days. Or they had twelve hour days. But every hour did vary. I hope I have I lost you all? I might have I think I might have lost you all. 
But that's the point. The point is that every single day that has passed has been a complete day. A completed day. Not a day had had gone by that was incomplete. Right? Because even if the day only had five hours, they divide that by 12 and it's complete. And it's rolled over. So every single day had 12 portions, which means every day was complete. And I think what Jesus is saying is this. If a day, a 12-hour day, no matter how long those days are, those hours are, if every day is, complete, is, is divided into 12 hours, 12 equal portions, then it means that your life and mine and the lives of the disciples will not come to an end until they are complete. Until the day that the Lord has decreed has come to an end until the sun has set on their life and looking back it may be 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 50 or 100 years that day that life is perfectly complete why because your days they're numbered you see the the disciples were here they were fearful they're fearful of going back to judea And that's why they're speaking to Jesus this way. And this is the way Jesus alleviates their fear. And I believe what he's saying is this. That your day is numbered. God is sovereign over every moment of every day. He's decreed from eternity past how many minutes and how many hours and how many months that you have. None of you is going to come and to meet his grave None of you will die. None of you will cease to exist in the physical way. None of you before those 12 hours are up. It's preordained. It's preordained. It's in the hands of God. The sun will never go down before its time. God is in complete control. I want you to feel the weight of those words. Disciples are terrified. They're afraid. And this is how Jesus alleviates their fears. Not, not by saying, it's okay. You'll be okay. Or, don't worry. This trip won't end in death. N- not at all. Rather, he's pointing their eyes back to the, the absolutes that are found in God. That God has ordained our days. He's decreed our times. And even if it means that they head on down that way and one of them dies, or two of them dies, which we know is not according to the will of the Father, Jesus is saying, your time was up. This is your time to come up according to the will of the Father. For example, the Apostle John, who's writing this gospel, the fourth gospel, The sun is still up on him at the time he's writing and therefore he still has work to do. His brother, on the other hand, James. Well, James, the sun had set on James. He had a fairly short life, killed by King Herod. His time had set. So the amount of hours he had in day were a lot shorter than the Apostle John. But the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Is the sun up? And the way you and I can answer that question is, does our heart still beat? Are we alive? Is there an opportunity for us to get out there and do the work that the Lord would want us to do? Not by saying it's going to be okay, but rather by pointing them to the sovereignty 
of God. How many days do we have left? None of us knows. How long is every hour of our days? If we knew, we'd be able to calculate and then say, I know how long I'm going to live. But no one knows the time or the hour. But he does. And the question is, are we going to trust in him for every moment of every day? How are you going to spend your years? How are you going to spend your months? How are you going to spend your weeks? The time is passing. We need to abide in the light so that we do not stumble. You know that passage that we all know quite well in Ephesians chapter 2? We're told, therefore, by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not by your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no man will boast. For you are all his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Hear this. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's ordained our days. He's numbered our days. And he's also prepared the work that we should do in the days that we have. And he has allotted the time necessary for us to actually accomplish the things that, or the tasks and the work that he has allotted for us, preordained for us to do. The question is, are we walking in his will? Are we aligning our hearts to his heart? Are we looking to the Father and saying, Lord, give me a heart to desire the things that you desire. Lord, don't let me use my days haphazardly. Lord, I pray that you won't allow me just to waste the time that I have, not to be in fear that this could happen or this could happen. Jesus says we need to go. We need to go to to Judea. This is the will of the Son of God. Not to be in fear for their lives, but to trust. If our time has come, then it has come. It's been decreed from eternity past. Am I going to trust in him and spend my life and my days in his service for his kingdom? Or am I not? Beloved, for Jesus, that time had not yet come. The hour for his glorification, the hour for which he will lay down his life had not come. The sun was still up and it will not come down until he has accomplished everything that he was called or sent by the Father to accomplish. Every last detail of the plan of God upon the Son will be accomplished. Actually, Jesus said something earlier in John chapter 9, verse 4, when he said, we must, to the disciples as as well, he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Night is coming when no one will work. And Jesus knew full well that his life is indescribable humanly speaking, as is ours, until the day that the Lord had decreed for us to go back to our Maker. And then Jesus says in John chapter 17, even though the now is not the day or not the hour, he's still not at the twelfth hour, but he'll get to the twelfth hour and when he does, he declares on the night that he was betrayed there in John chapter 17, I glorified you on earth, speaking to the Father, having accomplished the work that you have given me. Hear that? Having accomplished, past tense, the work that you have given me. Here in John chapter 11, he's still accomplishing the work 
the day is still up and they're going to walk in day and we'll get to that next week so that they will not stumble but now here in John chapter 17 Jesus looks back and says I have accomplished the work that the Father has given me and now Father glorify me in your own presence and with your glory that I had with you before the world existed utmost confidence that the twelfth hour would come and it would not come even a moment before it is decreed to come. Utmost confidence that his life would not be taken away. How many times have we looked back and saw how many times the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, to arrest Jesus, to push him over a cliff? Unsuccessfully every single time because his hour had not yet come. But when his hour had come, when the time for his glorification had come, we're told that he hung upon that cross. And when they hung him upon that cross, with the twelfth hour, the, the sun came down and there was darkness over the whole land. And then from that cross, Jesus, before yielding his spirit, he cried out those words that we've all come to know and love. You remember what those words are? It is finished. It's done. It's been accomplished. All that the Father had given him, the will of the Father has now been accomplished by his Son upon that cross so that those who would trust in him will not perish under the judgment of God but will have eternal life in him to enjoy him forever. Let's pray.